Today on the Bible Archives, we're going to get into Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. And if you came to this episode because you saw Genesis 19 looking for the quick answers to the whole situation in Saddam and Gomorrah, well, you're going to have to wait because it is our understanding that you can't understand Genesis 19 without Genesis 18. So that's where we're going to start. So we find out that after the whole circumcision event, Abram, Abraham, sorry, his name changed. Abraham is now at the Oaks of, I don't know how to say that. Mamre? 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 I don't know. Ask somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. You know, you wouldn't know how to pronounce it anyway, because no one's alive who speaks that language anymore. Well, usually I just fake it, and it sounds somewhat, you know, respectable. Not with that word. Anyways, so he's at this Oaks place. What's important is all of the covenant imagery has happened, and we're going to see how this works. And the first event happens at a piece of promised property that they own. So first big covenantal image, Genesis 12, going to be a blessing to all nations. They're going to be fruitful, multiply, and have land. Then Genesis 15, there's going to be protection. The contract is signed. Then we got circumcision. So the only piece missing now is land. Well, here's Abraham at a piece of land that they own. So it looks like the covenant's coming together. But then things get interesting. And I think it's important to mark that this first image, this first story about how the covenant works in real time with these folks is about a very particular topic, which is hospitality. Now, we've already heard about this place, the Oaks place. And I should qualify that uh, it, it isn't necessarily that Abraham owns this territory, but he's settled here before. So we heard about this in Genesis 13. Uh, so there's some implication that he's an inhabitant of this place. And, and that starts bringing up the covenant. So what we find starting out right at the beginning is that Abraham is sitting in the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And this is a particular posture that, you know, the author takes time to make us aware of this, takes time to describe it. And this is a posture of hospitality. So Abraham is literally waiting for folks to show up so that Abraham can serve them. And he looks up and there's three men standing there. I think this also brings up a little bit of chapter 15, where it's almost like this dreamy state. For This, for example, is from the J source. So you have more of that narrative style. There's the story-like quality to it. And there's that detail of the heat of the day as if Abraham is sitting there sort of dozing and then he sees these visitors coming towards him. And the, the dreaminess of it is we, we never actually find out who these visitors are. Yeah. We don't know anything about them except for there's three of them. And uh, apparently they're male uh, but that could just be a way to designate uh, personhood in in Hebrew. That it requires a, a gender on the end of the uh, on the end of the word. Um, the point seems to be though Abraham's response. So he's already sitting. He's waiting. Somebody shows up. It's like yes, I got what I was hoping for. Yeah, I get to serve somebody. It's the the 
point is hospitality. So he runs out to meet them, and that's classic. That's something that in some uh, uh, Middle Eastern societies still occurs today, or just hospitality-oriented societies. They will run out to greet you. Um, so Abraham does this, runs out to greet them, then he bows to them, which is a sign of uh, servitude. And he even calls himself their their servant. So this is this is a typical scene of a person giving hospitality and being submissive to their guest. And he literally begs them, like, don't don't pass by. Don't steal the opportunity for me to interact with you in this way. And, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about the importance of hospitality. Giving this here for Abraham is seen as a uh, privilege. Yeah. You could say. Mm -hmm. And in this culture, it was expected that, you know, if you're traveling, survival is very difficult. There's no gas stations. Um, that it would be reciprocated to you. So there's this cultural ex expectation here. If you did not provide hospitality, um, you you basically like were ashamed. Yeah, I would say it's like a virtue that almost borders on sacred with the ancient Near Eastern <clears throat> that's mind. That's a really mm -hmm. good way to put that. Um, so that's what's going on here. And, and you know, <clears throat> you're going to see that again and again in different texts mm -hmm. all the way through. Um. And we find out that they actually have a conversation about what's going to happen. So Abraham says, um, you know, let a little water be brought. Let's wash your feet and let's uh, rest yourself under the tree. And he was going to go and get um, a little bread. So he invites them to, you know, refresh themselves. And then he goes and he actually uh, begins the process of getting these things. And that's going to bring up the other character who would be a part of this scenario, which is Sarah. Yeah. And apparently he hasn't really told Sarah about what the promise is that he, we talked about in the previous chapter because she doesn't initially know what these angels or people are talking about. They start talking about some of these things. Um, and she has to find out by the method that marginalized people will use careful observation, listening, subterfuge. So you can picture her listening at the tent entrance. You know, the women would crouch and listen at the tent entrance because they need to discern the motives and actions of these dominant class people that they, that their own person and their own, um, you know, in their lives might be impacted by. So, and we know that Abraham has given her away before and is this going to happen again? And it's funny because even though she's an old woman, Obviously, this is no barrier her, to her desirability because we'll see in another chapter or two, the same thing happens to mm -hmm. her again. So her fears may be legitimate. Yeah. Now, I think the, uh, the bringing up of the story of what happened in Egypt is, is actually important for this because we don't know the identity of these men. Right. And they've arrived. So Abraham could do something like that again. Right. And you we don't know, but I mean, they don't know, but we do as readers of the story. But Abraham and Sarah apparently at right. this point don't know who those people are and, yet. And we have to kind of take some character perspective here. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have this, uh, this, this looming scenario of the covenant just got brought up. They've interacted about this. Mm -hmm. And so now, obviously, something here is going to happen with the covenant. And that brings Sarah up as well. It would be easy for us to simply read this and go, you know, so in uh, verse 6, Abram, Abraham goes and says to Sarah, hey, now go do these things. Yeah. You know, I just told them we were going to help him out. 
Yeah, and, you uh, may go make bread. <laughs> and and it just sounds like stereotypical, you know, man making the woman do this thing. And that is happening. But we have to be careful that we don't assume that Sarah doesn't want to provide this hospitality either. This is true. And so it is important that both Abraham and Sarah are presented as hospitable figures because mm-hmm. that's going to come up in the next chapter with Genesis 19. Now, we can have conversations all day about whether that's done in a way that we would want to replicate in the modern world. But uh, we we can't read verse 6 and go, oh, see, Abraham is just, you know patriarchy that's there but we do have to go it was important for the author to include sarah as a person giving hospitality so it's not just abraham it's abraham and sarah and they're both important for the covenant right does that make sense sure it does because and she would be fulfilling a role that would be both expected and perhaps welcome um, because this is her area of expertise you know so she may be like sure i'll make the best bread i can make you know, and so perhaps she definitely wanted you know, to participate. Maybe, but maybe the author was, you know, way ahead of their time and, you know, could have written. And then Abraham, you know, went and did all of this and allowed Sarah to rest. What a great guy. Yeah, no. But then Sarah would have been left out of the covenantal hospitality mm-hmm. that's getting put on display. So we have to balance that there. It's important for Sarah to be involved. Right. You might disagree with how she's involved, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not so much that. It's more the sense of, you know, she's watching these guys, two strangers approach your tent. He offers hospitality. She's like, how is this going to impact me? That was just my view as a woman. If I saw it was in that situation myself, there might be a sense of tension about who Mm -hmm. are these people and how is this going to impact me and how am I going to end up in the situation? I think that's absolutely fair. But we have to be careful about coming to conclusions about something. sure. And then missing larger themes of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because now both of them are involved in covenantal hospitality, which is important for the identity of Israel. And what do they do? Well, they go extravagant. So we read that um, Sarah takes three measures of flour, which, uh, by the way, there's references in at least Matthew and Luke in the Gospels, the parables about the kingdom of God is like uh, yeast and flour and um, three measures are used there as well. Um, and that seems to be a direct reference to this in Genesis 18. Yeah, I think so. Anyways, three measures of choice flour. That's a lot. That's like enough to feed a, a village. They make cakes. Abram, er, Abraham goes and... Uh, to the herd, takes a calf, then we're told it's tender and good, and slaughters the calf. Then Abraham said, and I'll get you a little water. Well, instead, he goes and gets curds and milk from a calf and puts it before him. Mm -hmm. So this is like the best of the best in quality, and it's way more than they could ever need. It's a major feast, yeah. And that's that seems to be the intentional part of... Um, how hospitality is portrayed. He's not only waiting to do this, it's extravagant. It's irrational even, that kind of generosity. Yeah, and I think later on we're going to see a contrast between him and Lot. And we'll talk about that maybe when they get there. But when the strangers come to the city, all, all, all Lot offers them as unleavened bread. Yeah. So there's it, like a contrast between the hospitality of Abraham and the hospitality of Lot. Like we said at the beginning, Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 are together. Yeah. So... You got you to gotta read them accordingly. Um, we could even make a depiction that, 
you know, this is a portrait of Genesis one and Genesis two of mm-hmm. everything's good and it's connected and there's this wholeness to it and it's sort of flowing from God to the people and back and it's it the hospitality becomes a picture of divine intention. Um but pairing this depiction as a fulfillment of the the covenant and a vision of how Adonai's world is supposed to work. That's, that's what the author chooses to give us as the first picture of the covenant in action. And, the, and this is it. Now, all of this leads to a conversation then of the heir. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you could even say like, is Adonai going to match the generosity of Abraham and Sarah? Is Adonai going to irrationally give mm-hmm. to these, these covenantal people? Um, and then here in verse nine, you, uh, it, Sarah gets brought into this and this is where you do. So she's listening in on this yeah. conversation that's going on. And now we already saw Abraham laugh. Now Sarah laughs in response. Um, and again, we talked about this last episode, the, t- to laugh, Yitzhak, mm-hmm. Isaac, it's the same word. So, it, you know, it literally says, you know, they isaac yeah. And the kid's going to end up being called Isaac. Mm-hmm. But we have kind of an indication here that maybe Abraham has still hopes that Ishmael will be the heir because you get the feeling that he hasn't told Sarah about the promise because she doesn't seem to know what's going on yet. And I think that's why she laughs because she hasn't heard this. This is a new surprising idea to her. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you mentioned this issue of their relationship is going to come up again in uh, a, a couple chapters. They're going to be back in Egypt. Um, or no, the, and then Isaac's going, Isaac, yeah, does, Isaac does the same thing in Egypt. It's one of the type scenes. Yeah. It's, there's three different ones and, and there's some discussion about why they tell that story three times in Genesis. Uh, but again, Abraham's not necessarily portrayed great because of that. Um, so just another little jab at Abraham. Um, then from there, uh, these, these travelers continue, they, they go on. Uh, and the question now is, are they going to find continued generosity in the world as they keep traveling? Well, Hmm. they're heading towards Saddam and Gomorrah. The, the text specifically mentions Saddam, which is, if you remember where Lot is, and that question needs to sit in our head as we keep going, um, as we keep going through this. Now, in verse 17, we find out that Adonai is considering yes, hiding something mm-hmm. from Abraham. It, it says, Adonai said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And so now we know, uh-oh, some, something is going on. And um, then we find out that, no, because his ancestors are going to need to know about this. And it, it feels like, as you're reading this part, that what's going to happen is going to be so rough. You know, Abraham's going to become a great nation. Do we really want him to know how this went down? And, and eventually it's, yes, because knowing about this story might lead them to doing righteousness and justice in the future, the, the ancestors of Abraham. But something's going to happen. Uh, and so now this leads us to what is the sin of Saddam and Gomorrah? And one of the 
fascinating like additions into this is that it's all it's all placated by Adonai uh, hears an outcry. There's there's a cry. Like does that that should sound familiar to us. So that's setting up a theme. And then we we find out Adonai is going to go see. You're going to go see what this cry is all about. And the next thing we read is so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. And this creates this this interesting situation an issue with these travelers. Who are these travelers? Yeah. Because God goes, I'm going to go see. So the men turned. Mm-hmm. So is God the men? Or are the men like messengers that God sent? But it doesn't say, I'm going to go see by sending my messengers. Or I'm going to go see and I'm going to do so somehow through these travelers that are disconnected from me. It doesn't tell us. And that leaves this with, uh, it's almost intentionally ambiguous and it creates this problem that uh, of translating and interpreting this this whole chapter. What's going on with God and the travelers? And then that brings up an issue. It gets even worse for us uh, because this next scene with Abram, Abraham, and, and Adonai arguing or or discussing, depending on how you read it, <laughs> right, carries the same ambiguity. And there's a lot of different thoughts on you know what's going on here. Yeah. Well, this is definitely a JSTOR story. You can tell because of the anthropomorphic way that God interacts with Abraham. So the first thing we see is God speculating on whether he should even tell Abraham about this. And it's like he's commentating with the other people, those two other men. And he kind of wonders about, you know, he wonders aloud as if he should, should he tell this to Abraham or not? He concludes that since he wants Abraham to teach righteousness to his offspring, that he will allow him to become part of this decision-making process. So he becomes part of a decision-making process involving the fate of, of Sodom, which has not yet been decided. And it almost reminds me of like that Tower of Babel story where it's like God maybe doesn't actually even seem to know what's going on. But one of the most puzzling things to me is the fact that Abraham can stand in the presence of God here and essentially as if God was a human being. It's like he's in a recognizable human form, it seems, from which, the story. Which is a trait of the J source. Yeah, very Anthropomorphized much so. version of, of Adonai. Mm-hmm. But this seems to go even further than oh. what we've seen with that. Yeah, absolutely. Because in other starts of the Bible, it's, you know, for example, Moses, when he meets with divine the divine his face becomes transfigured or sometimes it says you know you can only see the back parts of me so i god has to hold his hand away from moses so that he isn't overcome by god's glory and god's power and here abraham is standing and talking to god as if he was just a regular human and there are some some commentaries that some different theologians have about this because it seems that this may be what they call a textual variant Um, There is a theologian named Doug Ward, and this is what he points out about this. He says, and I'm quoting him here, at the close of this scene, the reader moves on to verse 23. The men turned away and went towards Saddam, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So the two men go, Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, this seems relatively straightforward. Many scholars have long noted that there is a textual variant that we should at least note, however, here. Um, He says, in the Hebrew manuscripts, this verse is marked by what they call tikkun safarim, a scribal correction of the original text. And what this is an an instance where 
The words or phrases are traditionally understood to have been traditionally or deliberately changed. So there's a tradition that these are deliberately changed by the scribes because they thought the original words sounded irreverent in some way. And that change is then marked in the manuscript margin. So according to the tradition, and this is uh, Dr. Ward again, it says, the original reading, Yahweh remained standing before Abraham, has Yahweh taking the subordinate position. It was this idea of Yahweh being accountable to Abraham that was so unacceptable to the early scribes. So they reversed the subject and the predicate and had Abraham standing before God. The manuscript notation preserves the tradition of the scribal correction. So then he says, if this textual reading is correct, God is doing more than responding to Abraham. It's as though Abraham is presiding over the meeting. Now, there's a lot of different ways you could approach that, you know, just a, a, a blatant textual variant um, that original oral tradition or something they disagreed with mm-hmm. what uh, people began understanding later. This also could reflect the sort of evolution that happens with Israel. Could be, yeah. Uh, and, and this this uh, could be an example of a chapter that includes that. Um, or you can start working into even deeper theology of Abraham as the patriarch has this austere presence that's able to do something that no other being is capable. You know, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of ways that you can interact with this. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's going to complicate that, well, (laughs) the, the, the larger plot of what's about to happen is Abraham is let in on a decision or he's able to influence the divine. Right. That's really important. That's something that I think does get promoted a lot within ancient Judaism, Mm -hmm. that Abraham had that and that that's accredited to him as righteousness in some, in some, uh, ways. Um, but this argument does involve Abraham kind of telling God how God should act. And if we want to read this in light of the beginning of the chapter, it's will God be generous, Right. you know? Um, and one, one of the ways that happens is he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that conversation of righteous and wicked, that should sound like Genesis six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you weren't going to do this again. Um, now Jesus also uses this in, in different parables of the righteous and the wicked. I, I'm, particularly thinking about the the parable of the weeds that happens in Matthew 13. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is language that we, we see a lot. And then one of the things that complicates uh, this issue of Abraham and Adonai is Abraham says, I think it's verse 27, uh, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Uh-huh. And so there's there's a... I am able to come into the presence of Adonai because of Adonai's volition, not my own. I'm just dust and ashes. So there's this intentional separation that happens there. Um, But that whole conversation is, it's the interpretive possibilities that exist there Mm -hmm. are many. Uh, One detail that is uh, important because, you know, it kind of works down, you know, what if there's 50? You know, what if... Um, yeah, 10 people, 10 men specifically during this time were, uh, necessary to have a quorum oh, yeah, for a village right. mm-hmm. in order to make decisions for that village mm-hmm. or that tribe. Yeah. Uh, 
So, you know, working, working down to a small group is kind of a way of saying like, is there, is there a quorum here? And if, if a quorum is righteous, then they can speak for the whole village, right? So that, that's not all random, all those numbers. There's, there's something going on there. But there's also this collective nature. Um, the whole has to work in conjunction. So righteousness isn't just about individuals. It's, is the village righteous? Is the place righteous? Yeah, there's actually kind of this larger concept of, can a person's righteousness cover the guilt or whatever of another of other people. And um, there's actually kind of a rabbinic tradition that says there are 36 righteous people who justify the existence of all humans, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. It comes from the Talmud. um, And that's kind of this commentary, by the way, the Talmud is a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures that are rabbinic writings that surround it. Uh, But there's hints of this all through the Bible, that there's this idea that a righteous person can stand in perhaps for then the guilt of the whole community. So it's almost like saying humans are not just slaves or pawns, as we've talked about with the surrounding nations and their gods and goddesses, but this is a case where humans have agency as co-actors in carrying out God's plans. Yeah. Um, so th- this chapter is, is, there's a lot in this. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this one uh, can be interacted with for a while. The way it ends, though, is the best. It's the best part of the chapter. I don't know that it gets brought up a lot. And this is partly me, like, reader-oriented approach. I just <laughs> love this. So the last verse is, And Adonai went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram. And Abraham returned to his place. And it's like, you know, there's two ways that I would read that. The first being quite literal. He returned to, you know, where he was, mm-hmm. which would mean at the beginning of the chapter, the entrance to the tent of meeting. Oh, okay. Or not the tent. Of, whoa, I'm getting way ahead oh, on my yeah, books here. Sure. <laughs> the entrance to his tent. Yes. Which would be a return to the posture of uh, hospitality. Oh, okay. You could also read that as he returned to his place. You're right. Like existentially. Right. He, so he, he got a little bit. Okay. Going to come back down now. Yeah. Go to back to your proper place. But beyond all of that, Adonai allows Abraham somehow to be in that kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's unique. You're not going to really see that to this level again. But I just love it. And Abraham returned to his place. Yeah, that is pretty cool. A lot you could do with that. Mm -hmm. All right. So now all of this sets up Genesis 19. And uh, this is a chapter that is... A lot of people know about this chapter. I would say taking apart the Saddam narrative is like diffusing a bomb. I mean, this is, wow. We're diffusing. <laughs> you have to be careful. <laughs> so we're about to diffuse a bomb. We're about to diffuse a bomb here, yeah. Uh, but this is one uh, lots of people know about mm-hmm. this chapter. Very few people actually know about this chapter. Yeah, it sounds horrible to modern ears. But, you know, it's a lot of times it's been used, too, to justify different kinds of discrimination and intolerance. But it's because perhaps they didn't understand exactly yes. what's so, going on. Uh, just to, like, clear the air, I'm just going to go ahead and say, it is of my opinion and of the opinion of most Jewish commentators who have been reading this story for a long time that this is not about homosexuality. No, it isn't. So I'm going to leave that there. If you want to make claims using the biblical text about some sort of version of human sexuality, go ahead. Those texts exist and you can use them. Genesis 19 isn't one of them. All right. No. So um, I, I'm not going to tell you how you should interpret that theology. Um, I am telling you 
here we are in Genesis 19 where I, you would have to make a really strong case that overcomes a couple thousand years of interpretation to convince me that this is a text that you can allow to be part of that debate. Just doesn't seem like it. Yeah, so I agree. Um, now, the easiest way to sum up this chapter is, you know, think back to what Abraham just entered. There weren't 10. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> so there the needed whole to world, be... Like it takes you back, like you said, to Genesis 6. The whole earth is wicked. The whole city is wicked. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, they, they didn't have righteousness and justice as a ruling council on behalf of the whole tribe. Nope. That wasn't it. Um, and so now we enter into a story, and the beginning of Genesis 19 is meant to run in parallel with the beginning of Genesis 18. So you need to notice what's different mm-hmm. about these two, and that will tell you why the outcomes are different. Um, now keep in mind, we were told that there needed to be 10. There's not, but people are still spared. Yeah. So the deal was if there was less than 10, everybody's gone. People are spared here. Lot and Mm -hmm. his daughters, kind of his wife. That doesn't turn out so well. Oh, we talked about that here. Okay. (laughs) We'll we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So now we get these three men, they come, um, and at this point now, though, I, the language changes and we're told that's two messengers. Mm-hmm. Your text might say angels, angels, messenger, same word in Hebrew. So you got to figure out how you want to do with that. Um, so again, there's an emphasis on the divine presence with these guests. And I would say you could read that in the Genesis 18 as well, simply because they're guests. Yeah. You treat the guests like it's the presence of the divine. Here, that's more explicit. Mm-hmm. There's also kind of some connection of the last time we saw a messenger was uh, with Hagar. Oh, yeah. And uh, so Hagar was the presence of God that heard and saw during that. Uh, so we got we to gotta read that into any time we're seeing messengers throughout here in the text. And that's always, when you're reading the text, that's a principle of first mention. You go back to, uh, we already saw a messenger. So what did we find out there? That should implicate how we understand the messengers here, as opposed to going, here's how I culturally understand what an angel is based on what I was told by my grandparents going Mm -hmm. up and reading that into the text. Use the text to read the text. It's a great practice. Yeah. Anyways, that rant's done. (laughs) And there's a lot more rants to go. Oh, there will be some ranting. So Lot sees the guest coming Mm -hmm. and rises to meet them and bows. Two out of three things there yeah, are right. the same yes and the difference being i think you brought this up mm-hmm. when we saw uh abraham abraham ran out to meet him yeah lot does not lot does not so it's not as emphatic and running out to meet them that's important that's like a rule oh yeah so lots uh lots not offering the hospitality the to the same extravagancy not at all yeah um and then and then it gets more interesting because Lot doesn't, it, this just keeps kind of going downhill for Lot. The only hospitality Lot can offer is that they can get the hell out of there as soon as they've slept. <laughs> like, okay, we're going to give you a place to sleep and then you have to go. So immediately we're shown there's differences here. Oh, yeah. This is very Yeah, he offers situation. them unleavened bread. You know, instead of a feast, he doesn't, he just says that it offers yeah. them unleavened bread. So he's kind of portrayed as this foolish sort of irresolute person. And in a difficult place. Right. And think back, this is the place Lot chose. Lot chose this place. He wanted to go here. 
right? Well, yeah, but it's kind of interesting. Um, in the narrative, Lot is described as a foreigner. The people, the men who come to his house say he is a foreigner who has acted as a ruler. So you almost get the feeling like he's come in there and started maybe being, you know, a problem for his neighbors. This isn't maybe a random incident, but a case where he's already pissed off the neighbors and now they're reacting in a way to try to humiliate him. And you know, that, but that decision was Lot chose what appeared to be the best. Sure. And it was sort of the self-preservation of, you know, Lot looking out for number one. Mm-hmm. Well, Abraham didn't get that. Abraham had a calf to spare, milk and yeah. curds, yeah. more flour than necessary to make a ton of cakes. Um, Lot chose this supposedly better area. And these people get unleavened bread and yeah. maybe they'll make it through the night. Yeah. It doesn't sound like they like him much and it doesn't sound like he's doing very well in the yeah. city. So this is, this is a way kind of also to point back at lot. Didn't make the right choice. He's, right. Mm-hmm. he's no yeah, Abraham. He's not um, and, and remember Abraham, who, you know, waiting at the entrance of his tent offers a tree for rest. Lot keeps them in this, in this house mm-hmm. or this, this structure. Um, and that was not common. It was it was not common to sequester away a guest oh. because all members of the mm-hmm. city were supposed to help. Okay. You know, hospitality is not just about the person who receives. So it wasn't just low on Lot's shoulders. These are the whole the yeah. whole city well, should have and, welcomed and that's these people. Where Lot's actually trying to help because he's going. Mm-hmm. If we do this the traditional way, mm-hmm. y'all are going to die. Oh, okay. So he I knows know what, these what kind of city. Like. Yeah. Um. So. He's in the, he's in the city and they should be staying even in the middle of the village and being mm-hmm. received and Lot won't let that happen. So part of this is Lot's not a great host and his city is not a good host. But even, you know, I mean, you can read this and in, in, uh, when when Jesus talks about hospitality and it's a picture of the the response of the person reflects the whole village. Yeah. So the whole village needs you. If somebody chooses your home or you're the one who sees the guest coming, you better do this right because mm-hmm. this is on all of us. Yeah. And that's that's part of what's going um, that's going on here. So as soon as these guests that they would probably know have arrived uh, don't stay in the square, the hospitality's failed at that point. Yeah. So they still receive some stuff. It ain't it ain't irrational. It ain't extravagant. It ain't great. They've received some stuff, but now they're not able to be um, served by the community that is there. Um, So apparently, Adonai's verdict was right, that there is not righteous leadership with justice. No. That would be most obvious in this virtue. I like that you call it a virtue Mm -hmm. of hospitality, which means the covenant's not possible there. Because what was the primary indicator of of Abraham being a covenant people? Hospitality. Uh, Here we have a place. Yeah. They are not part of this. Um, So they eat. Again, it's not as extravagant as Abraham. But more importantly, instead of the men, the leaders, and yes, this is patriarchal society, instead of them ruling with righteousness and justice, you know, they would have shown up to offer hospitality and, and make decisions. That's what you would expect. Instead of that, the entire tribunal, every last one of them, surrounds the house to take advantage of the guest. Mm-hmm. Are there sexual connotations here? Yes. But this is, more importantly, the exact opposite of hospitality. Oh, yeah. This is about power and humiliation. And one of the things we have to understand here is the idea of homosexuality, mm-hmm. the way that we talk about it, 
that's not an issue. And the idea of a, a man um, taking, and, and the way you put that is better, taking advantage of a man for sexual gratification didn't deal with human sexuality no. as much as power dominance. Yeah. Um, and, and so when people want to try to make a case of like, see, and I saw somebody do this uh, recently, um, you know, Herod the Great was bisexual because he might have slept with a slave yeah, he forced himself on a slave to exert dominance. Mm-hmm. That, they're not as concerned about the the romantic fixtures of a sexual relationship. Well, yeah, I think this is even a thing where when a king conquers another king, sometimes that's what they'll do as a way of completely humiliating this yeah. person in public. So it's and, like, it's not exactly. a sexual thing at all. It's not about a relationship. It's about the power and the dominance. And, and that's what's going on here. Yeah, this absolutely. is about humiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's the most humiliating thing you can do to somebody? Yeah. So instead of Abraham's extravagant generosity, right. we get extravagant, the most extravagant humiliation here. Yeah. Um, and future commentators all take this perspective. I think it's, uh, is it Elijah or Ezekiel? There's a, there's a text later that refers to Genesis. Oh, yes, it's Ezekiel. I have it down here. Um it's Ezekiel 16 okay. because he says that the sin of Sodom was uh, the guilt of your sister Sodom, that they did not aid the poor and the needy. So it, was not a, it wasn't about their, yeah. their so sexual even, activities. Even Jews are reading this mm-hmm. based on hospitality. Jesus does the same thing. Uh, yeah. He compares the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as uh, a, a refusal of hospitality. Um, so it's so agreed upon that that's what's going on here. And if we try to make it into a thing about homosexuality, we actually miss what this implies for the covenant. Yeah. And this is something that I see people do uh, with the Bible all the time is there's a larger arc that helps explain what's going on. And instead of following that, we pick out one part and now we don't have anything to attach that to. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. The Good Samaritan parable. Oh, yeah. It's about roadside assistance, <laughs> right? It's about, you know, don't drive by the person with the flat tire, you know, do the right thing, help, help the, the person who needs help. That's how we, that's how you hear it preach all the time. Oh, yeah. As soon as we do that, we have now said that everything Luke, the gospel writer of uh, that parable, uh, everything Luke has done up until that point in the narrative of the gospel means nothing. Mm-hmm. If we read what's going on in that parable, according to what Luke's already been doing in the story, we see that Luke is concerned about uh, how the covenant of Israel is going to transcend Israel's boundaries and include and restore people with them, even Samaritans. Right. That's the issue. Sure. Who are the Jewish people back in the first century now, absolutely hated you, each you other. W- you want to, you want to uh, go, hey, look, we can use the Good Samaritan parable to help inspire treating one another well. Yes, but that's Fine. not the point. Mm-hmm. Some, some texts in the Bible do have a very clear point. I, I, kind, of, I kind of sound like a literalist saying this, but uh, it, you have to read it well. You mm-hmm. have to read what's going on. If we make this into something that doesn't deal with covenant hospitality, then we just said Genesis 1 through 18 doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't impact this at all. That's a terrible way to read any narrative. Anyways, second rant is done. (laughs) Now, (laughs) a lot in response. This is going to sound terrible. Anybody who reads this next part, it sounds terrible. Yeah, it does. Lot offers his daughters. Oh, yeah. 
in order to protect the outsiders. Mm -hmm. That's the most generous thing, lots done to protect his guests. Sadly, yeah, yeah, that's it. Now, we read that and we go, whoa, 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 this is getting out of control. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If this was 2021, yes, there's like criminal punishments being handed out here. Mm -hmm. It's not 2021. And this is, I, I, I hate to say this because this sounds barbaric, and it is. When Lot does this, Lot is trying to fulfill hospitality code. He is trying to protect his guests that he's hosting at all costs, even if it, it, it includes the humiliation of his children, of his daughters. Yeah. That is terrible. It's, it's hard heinous. to hear. It's very I, hard for the for the modern person to hear this yes. and understand the cultural things surrounding that. And it is by no means to um, to exonerate Lot. This is no. a terrible thing because he's already done wrong, and it's just evolving into this worse and worse yes. and worse situation. Yeah, absolutely. It, this isn't. That doesn't mean that's something you should replicate. Uh, you know, sometimes the Bible says things that are warnings of what not to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, but we have to see, you know, we go, why would he do that? And and people will go, oh, he's trying to make them heterosexual, right? That's why he, oh. no, come on, what are you doing? He is trying to go, if I allow these, my guests to be humiliated like this, that will forever shame me mm -hmm. and my entire ancestry. All I have is my daughters. And uh, so that's, we have to, again, be able to read the complexity of this and let's start with why it was written down, yeah. what they were trying to say, how they would have heard it, and then come to the 21st century, All right? That's hard to do with a lot of the books in the Bible. It's going to come up again. Oh, it right? sure this will. Isn't the only this time. isn't the first place that this happened, or this is the first place, but not the last. So, you know, the question, again, it's, it's not about how we should understand human sexuality. I if you want to have those conversations, fine. It's just not here in, in this text. Sexuality is a way to remove generosity, hospitality. It's humiliation versus hospitality. Mm -hmm. The question is how you treat the outsider, the alien, the guest, the traveler. Um, and Lot claims that he's let these people under his roof. And then the people of the village speak as a true council and they go, you're, you're a foreigner. You right. don't get the judge on our behalf. You're not part of the tribunal. Let us judge. And uh, that number 10 is important. They're the ones who get to determine what this, the fate of the, the village is going to be, the, 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 the fate of that, that area. Mm -hmm. Now, we already brought this up. The, the outcome is that the righteous are still preserved. Right. So a lot is determined to be righteous here. Um, despite what we just read with his daughters, despite what um, uh, the lack of hospitality that he seemed to offer, mm -hmm. he's still uh, condemned, if we want to use that word, as righteous. But the, the city itself is condemned because the cry is great against its people. And the assumption here is that those with power have oppressed the people. We, we still don't know what the de complete demographic was like of Saddam and Gomorrah. No. But the, the emphasis of a few get to determine the identity of a place. And that's going to come up again later. The issue of jesting or laughing comes back up. Mm -hmm. So this time, uh, is it Lot's son-in-law? His son's-in-law. Son's yeah, his son's-in-law. They, they think he's 
making a joke, but yeah. you, it's that same root word uh, of zach, which is dealing with laughter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we saw Abraham and Sarah laugh. Now the sons-in-law are laughing and it's not going to go well for them. Um, and then as we brought up, similar description to Genesis 6. And you're going to have a preserved remnant, uh-huh. the righteous, and the wicked are uh, removed. Right. Um, and then it's it, it kind of parallels Genesis 12. Take who is with you and go. Well, what what happened in, to Abraham? He's in Ur of the Chaldeans. Take who is with you and go to mm-hmm. this new land. So that's kind of going on with Lot here. Oh, yeah. Um, and then it's a similar sort of exodus leaving in the midst of this plague. So these are patterns that that we're seeing yeah i mean you talked about when uh, abraham was told to go he was like practically going before god got done speaking Uh, here we see lot lingering he doesn't really want to go he's like oh you know let me go to this city instead of to the hills it's like he doesn't have the same response at all to being told to leave it's that contrast yeah that contrast between lot and abraham and 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 here lot and noah and and Mm -hmm. lot and moses because moses is going to go and then you know don't look back Mm -hmm. don't desire that's also something that's a that's a part of the exodus narrative is don't look back don't desire have your desire be for egypt Right. Uh, and and you see that comes up to be a problem in the mm-hmm. wilderness narrative. Yeah. Um, and Lot seems to use his pole to preserve more people. And and you get this word um, uh, insignificant. Um, and I think some translate this as like the little city or the city that is small and basically lot uses his situation to go but don't destroy them mm-hmm. uh, so so more people kind of make it out alive because lot uh used his influence with adonai to change this setting so you just gotta see how genesis 18 and genesis 19 like run on parallel tracks but there's these little differences mm-hmm. that separate the story and I really think some of this goes back to Genesis 14, Genesis 15, uh, or Gen- Genesis 13, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, where we're starting to see Abraham and Lot were together and now they're going in different directions. Yeah. And what's different about them? Well, one's covenant, one's not. Right. And that's about to come to a head. Um, the whole sulfur and fire thing. Mm-hmm. That's fun. <laughs> um, some people think this is ideological. Right. As a way to explain that area that looked. Yeah, the Dead uh, Sea area is pretty barren. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and there's pillars of literal pillars of yeah. salt that are formed like uh, calcite. This is also warrior military language, which is going to come up oh. as we get into um, further books of, you know, Adonai as a divine warrior. Okay. Well, uses, um, you know, natural disasters mm-hmm. to accomplish means. And that's kind of what's going on here. So this might be the first divine warrior text. Okay. And the destruction's complete, which is, if you read the book of Joshua, there's this phrase called harem. Oh, yes. Which is, you know, a complete destruction to the Lord, Mm -hmm. to Adonai, because uh, it had to do this whole thing of like Israelites not taking spoil and all of that. Well, so here you get a divine warrior image with complete destruction. Yeah, everything has to die. The the people, the animals, everything. Mm -hmm. And then pillar of salt. Like you said, this is a salty area. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense. But then um, a person looks back she and does. becomes a pillar of salt. How do you um, explain that? I feel a little 
bad for her. Well, it's a strange folkloric uh, motif, actually. There's a lot of stories, extra biblical stories, where people are told not to look back, and they do. Um, you know, Dionysus goes to, into the underworld to bring his, his wife back because she dies, and, and uh, Hades, or whoever the Greek god it was, says to him, you know, you can have her back, but you must not turn around and look at her. She'll never mm -hmm. be able to come back again. So this is a common motif. But I can't help but feel a little sorry for a Lot's wife because here Lot has been dithering, he's been lingering, he's been looking back all you know as far as you can see, and yet she only glances over her shoulder. I don't know. It's just my own thought. That's maybe a little reader-oriented approach there. But I did find it as a folkloric motif interesting because yeah. I wonder what it is about the human consciousness that we like to tell these kind of stories about not looking back at the past. There's another part of this, too, um, where salt becomes really important for the covenant. Oh, this and, is true. Uh, particularly like a, sort of a renewal in the covenant. Mm -hmm. And there are some, I've not necessarily scholarly, but more traditional perspectives okay. of uh, she becomes a reminder of the covenant. Oh, interesting. You know, a pillar of I've salt. I've never heard that one before. Um, that's just some different ways to read that. Sure. Then you get the epilogue. Ah, to all this, is an of this interesting story. Um, which I don't know what your section heading says, but it should say those incestuous bastards. Because oh no, it's not their fault at all. This is a theme, though, for Genesis, but other texts as yeah. well. Israel's enemies, when you get their origin stories, well, they're yes. often born out of incest. Mm -hmm. So. How, however, I don't know how you all want to approach this, but <laughs> you have to work with the fact that, and we handled this in the overview episode, these stories aren't written down. Maybe they were already composed orally and all of that. They're not written down until later, until, you know, Moab and Ammon are actual places and tribes. Right. And so going back and telling a story of, you know, you know why these guys suck? You know why these tribes are enemies and they're evil? Well, it's because they were born of incest. Right. Here's the story. That happens all the time. It's a it's a very common thing in sure. Israel's text. Sure. And I, you might be getting a little ahead of yourself because I think people, if they haven't read the story, might need to know what's going on here a little oh, bit. Um, sorry. That's, that's just, a, that, that should, I, everything I just said, that should be the section heading. Yeah. It should be a paragraph. <laughs> it's of, a paragraph section heading. Yeah. For sure. Because basically it's like these women don't know. They, the, the, the daughters of the daughters of Abraham think that the world is destroyed. They look out and they see ruination. So they think it's up to them to continue this mm -hmm. line, you know, this line of people, of human beings. They almost in kind of an arc situation here. And it's like, so they decide, okay, you go and, and get dad drunk and I'll have sex with him and then we'll be able to have children. And then the next night you do the same thing and we'll be able to have kids. And it works for them, but except it doesn't. They have two boys, which of course leaves them back where they started in a way but that's why they do it and, and it is in fact you know, an unflattering etiology of how the Moabites and the Ammonites came about but that's why it happens and what's interesting about this as well even though those two tribes do become the enemies of Israel there is one midrash that says that because of the actions of these women it leads to two mothers of Israel so the person of Ruth who was a Moabitess, right. and then uh, Nama, the Ammonite wife of Solomon. So there is kind of a seed of messianic redemption here, of, or you could say of a uh, future covenantal people. Yeah, they they in make this it act. into Jesus's gene genealogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is interesting to consider. 
Uh, there's actually a painting of this at the Toledo Museum of Art. I don't know if you've seen I it. I think I, yes, it's now in, that you say that to me. It's I in the I Red have. Room. Mm-hmm. Um, I, those of you who don't live in Toledo, Ohio, in the United States don't have any clue what we're talking about. But we have a great museum here. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the painting itself is, it captures this scene well. The The hopeful intentions of the daughters, the aloofness of Lot, and just the overall destruction that plagues this whole narrative. You, you look at yeah. it and go, yeah, none of this is going to work. It's all bad. And it this doesn't. Whole, this whole chapter is just, forget but, it. Yeah. But again, you know, these, they're going to become the nemesis of Israel. Mm-hmm. It's, they're born through incest. It deals with wine. Well, we've already seen this once. Mm-hmm. Somebody right. had too much wine, incest, Canaan. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, now it's Moab and Ammon. Um, and, and particularly here, the intentions of the daughters <clears throat> looking to preserve their line. That is going to be something that you see is really important too. Right, yeah. Having children to preserve a line, here they they sort of overextend. Yes. And it's that overextension of Genesis 3, that overextension of Genesis 4, of Genesis 6. And that's showing up again too. Mm-hmm. So all those themes kind of come together. So Genesis 18 and 19 is a mouthful. Like <laughs> there's so much that goes on in these two chapters. And uh, they're really important, not only because the richness of the text itself, but because of how they get used in, in contemporary society. So it's really important to take the time to read these well and to read what else has been said about this. Yeah. And you, you have to be careful because I know, I know people sort of uh, on, on the more socially progressive side use this as an example to oh the, the conservative whatever uh, you know, they, they don't pay attention when they read the text. They don't read it right. And see, it's actually about this. We can fall victim to our own ideologies if we allow that to influence how we approach any text. And if we are not taking the time to read the text intentionally, to read it from where it was written from, not through our 21st century lens. Yeah. And to read it within the context of the story that's being told, we're going to end up in some awkward positions where we're making claims about it that aren't good. And even if you're trying to use it to make some sort of progressive claim, you might actually be doing so using the same technique that people have used that leads to really destructive readings. And I've seen this happen with, you know, the more left side, if that's even a thing. I hate the left-right distinction. It all just comes back to the French Revolution, whatever. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, you know, we want to we wanna try to make a claim so we'll mess with the text. We'll sort of twist it to do something. So we, it says something we want it to say and not realize that's if we're going to be okay with that technique, you've got to be okay with it across the board. That's what people did to justify slavery. You yeah. can't do that. You have to have some sort of criteria where you put yourself in your proper place and see your reading in, in uh, you know, with this proper sense of proportion to how it's been read over time. So not only how you're reading the text, but then read what people over the last thousand, two thousand, three thousand years have said about it and realize you're just one small part of that. You know, in, in the modern world, we have this illusion that Everybody that came before us is just this wasteland of ideas, but we're the ones. You know, I, I know how this should, this should work. And it's like, it, you know, slow down. 
you are but one blip on the radar as well, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully you'll do such a great job with how you approach the text that somebody who comes after you will see that you contributed to this map and we knew a little bit more because you read it well. All that to say, Genesis 18 and 19 need to be approached with that intentionality. And I just don't, on both sides of the political, theological line, I don't see that happen. Um, So just start there. Pay attention to what it says. Pay attention to why they would have written this down. Pay attention to how it fits in with the larger section of the text and then listen to the voices who have come before you and then tell us what you think, but go in that order. So that's it for today's episode. Uh, Next time we are going to get into uh, Genesis 20, Genesis 21, then we're going to get into Genesis 22, which is a famous part. Um, and there's, this is how Genesis is going to go from here, is that there's going to be parts that we don't really recognize, not sure what's going on there. Oh, really famous story. And then some parts that are a little bit more mundane, really famous story. Um, and so we'll try to elevate the, the texts that haven't gotten as much attention and see if we can uh, look more deeply at the texts that we might assume that we know so well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.